Healthcare Today is produced and paid for by the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to WDEV at RadioVermont.com. Healthcare Today with Dr. Lewis Myers, a weekly exploration of health and wellness topics affecting Vermonters. Brought to you in part by Westview Meadows and the Gary Residence, retirement living the way it's meant to be. Age Well Vermont, the leading experts and advocates for older adults in northwestern Vermont. Northfield Pharmacy, pharmacy care with a personalized hometown touch. Northfieldpharmacy.com And Kinney Drugs and KinneyDrugs.com, employee owned and locally committed. Your participation is encouraged. Call with your questions, 244-1777 or 877-291-8255. Good afternoon from snowy uh, Vermont on February 25th. I'm Dr. Lewis Myers, and this is Healthcare Today. We're going to be talking today with orthopedist Dr. William Hamilton from Alexandria, Virginia, primarily about joint replacements, but also several other orthopedic uh, uh, issues that and problems that he treats. If you have any questions or comments today uh, for Dr. Hamilton about either hip or knee replacements in particular, please give us a call at 802-244-1777. Again, our station is 802-244-1777. So let me introduce Dr. Hamilton. Dr. Hamilton is a uh, orthopedist with the Anderson Orthopedic Clinic, which is a prominent uh, orthopedic clinic in Alexandria, Virginia. He graduated from undergraduate at Brown University in Rhode Island. He went to medical school at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine and did his internship in general surgery and then his residency in orthopedic surgery at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. He has subsequently done continued to do research along with his clinical work and is a uh, teacher and has published in many, many journals. Dr. Hamilton, welcome. Thank you, Lewis. Great to be on. We... Uh, we're going to talk primarily about joint replacements and particularly about hip and knee replacements, which I know you specialize in. Um, tell us a little bit. Of, you, I know that the Anderson Clinic in Alexandria is a very, very busy clinic down at, in a, serving a large population in northern Virginia. Tell us about the relative numbers of hip and knee replacements that you do at your clinic on an average year. Yeah, so we, uh, you know, this has grown quite a bit over the 20 years that I've been in practice, but there are uh, eight of us now that do hip and knee replacements, and, and part of the growth is fueled by the, the baby boomers. You know, much of our population is aging, we're more active, we're living longer, and the numbers have grown. So this is a, it's a booming business. There's lots of patients. Uh, an average uh, surgeon in our practice will be doing around five, six, seven hundred joint replacements per year per physician. So we're, as a group, doing uh, about 3,000 joint replacements per year, uh, and that has grown quite a bit over the last 10, 15 years. I assume your staff has grown uh, along with it? That's true. I mean, you, you know, the, the business of healthcare has changed quite a bit over the years, and, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about how joint replacements have really changed. Uh, but in many ways, the care of hip and knee replacement patients has gotten a bit easier. 
Um, because our techniques have improved, our anesthesia has improved, patients stay in the facility far less than they did 20 years ago. Uh, the management of patients has, I think, actually gotten a little bit easier. I think we've been able to reduce some of the complications. We've been able to reduce pain and some of the, the, the hospital care that was provided over the decades. And that has actually allowed us to increase the number of people we treat without necessarily increasing the burden on our, on our staff. So imagine if we were doing this many patients and patients were staying in the hospital for a week at a time, which is what they did in the 1980s. Now that's, it's a far different uh, thing. So even, you know, when you and I worked together years ago and, and we'd have a, a lot of inpatients in the hospital, that just isn't the case anymore. Many of these patients uh, recover at home. Let me ask you, uh, uh, diverge for a minute to talk about this past year, I guess 18 months to 24 months with, with COVID. Um, we have certainly heard uh, that a lot of elective procedures, which include joint replacements, ha- had to be deferred. Um, how has that affected you and your team, and how do you how do you work through the backlog? Yeah, well, that's it's been a very interesting couple of years. We're coming up really on the two year anniversary when everything shut down in March of 2020. And, you know, initially uh, when the pandemic shut down all of society, we closed our facility to any procedures except for emergencies. So that was for about six weeks. We, you know, I kind of sat at home. I did telehealth, handled emergencies, but really did not do any elective procedures. And then when we restarted in May of 2020, we started with patients that really needed to be done, those that were emerging and and those that could successfully recover at home. So we really did all outpatient procedures. And while we had done outpatient procedures before that, it really inspired us to increase the numbers of people that we could treat as an outpatient. So it really led to a boom in same-day discharge where patients go home. Over the course of the, of the following six or eight months, it, it kind of returned to business as usual until the winter of 2020 and 2021, uh, when not only was there a, a, a surge in cases, but also when they released the first vaccine in December of 2020, uh, there was actually a, a relative lull of cases because once patients knew that the vaccine was available, many of our patients postponed surgery in anticipation of getting the vaccine. Uh, once uh, mass vaccination uh, became uh, uh, accessible, many of those patients rescheduled. So a bulk of 2021 was, was pretty busy um, with many patients who had postponed procedures now getting them performed. Uh, we had a, a slower winter this winter with the surge in Omicron because there's still quite a bit of, of concern for the virus. But certainly our hope is, and I think we're seeing signs of it, that with a fairly high vaccination rates, um, Omicron passing, and the spring coming, that there'll be a, a relative increase in volume. I think there is, and many of us predict, quite a backlog of patients that will uh, need to be handled. Uh, at this point, though, we're, you know, we're – we're handling that without a problem. We still have capacity and there's a number of surgeons around that can help. But I do think there will be a relative increase in the number of hip and knee replacements in 2022 as we kind of deal with the, the slower past two years. We're talking with Dr. William Hamilton, orthopedist who uh, specializes in joint replacements. If you have any questions for Dr. Hamilton, we're at 802-244-1777.
So, Dr. Hamilton, let's start at the beginning. When a patient comes to you to talk about joint replacement or just even if they haven't necessarily been considering it, but they're coming to you because they're having significant hip or uh, knee pain, what is what do you do for an evaluation and how do you assess whether that patient needs a joint replacement or could benefit? Absolutely. I mean, the first thing you do, obviously, is to start with a standard history and physical. And, and many of these patients are seen by, you know, primary care providers like yourself who figure out what the problem is first. So they come knowing uh, what they have. But if uh, assuming that they are coming for an initial evaluation, of course, you take the history and these things are fairly characteristic pain in the hip and knee area. Uh, these are usually semi-chronic conditions that develop over time. Um, uh, a physical exam will help to identify the cause. And, and then the real the hallmark is just getting a plain x-ray. A simple x-ray will identify uh, the condition. The most common condition that leads to the need for hip and knee replacement is going to be osteoarthritis. And osteoarthritis is your wear and tear disease which is basically a slow deterioration of the cartilage, which is the cushion of the hip or knee joint. And as that deteriorates and the cushion is lost, the forces on the joint increase, and uh, and then that results in pain and swelling in the resulting joint. So that usually is, is where we start. And then we always start with non-operative treatment. So you never, uh, well, in rare cases, do you start by recommending surgery, uh, but for a patient who has, you know, it's their initial evaluation, you're going to recommend uh, simple non-operative care. And there's been a lot of research and science been on this. There's not a lot of things that solve arthritis, but things certainly that can help. Uh, weight loss, which is we know obesity is an epidemic in our country, maybe less so uh, for you outdoorsmen in Vermont. But certainly nationwide, obesity is a real problem. So we always recommend if people are overweight that they decrease uh, weight, you know, the, the weight that people carry uh, can be really dramatic in the hip and the knee, and, and some studies showing that uh, for every pound that you carry, it can increase the stress across your knee joint by five or six pounds, so it can be really beneficial to lose five or ten pounds even. Um, so weight loss, activity modification, simply by avoiding things that seem to cause pain, uh, physical therapy, or even structured home exercise programs can be really helpful just to improve the strength and flexibility around the joint, reduce pain through natural endorphins and blood flow. And then there's simple medications. We typically start with analgesics such as Tylenol, which is acetaminophen, or anti-inflammatory medicines like ibuprofen or Aleve. Um, those are some of the, the initial things that we'll start. What about some we, of the uh, more uh, more uh, uh, new and, and expensive interventions such as stem cell therapy or platelet uh, infusions into joints? Yeah, so these are these are hot topics, and there's a lot of developing research. Uh, the second one you mentioned, PRT, which is platelet-rich plasma. This is where they take a portion of your blood out, they spin it down to get the platelet layer, which uh, contains a number of hormones and, and enzymes that can actually reduce pain and inflammation. And there has been uh, research on PRT. Um, currently, in most situations, PRP is not covered by the insurance, so it's an out-of-pocket expense. And the question is, is, does it help? And I think there's fairly convincing evidence now that PRP actually can reduce pain from arthritis if you look at some of the randomized studies that have been done. Um, but there isn't compelling evidence to suggest that it actually will do anything to rebuild cartilage. So some of the 
marketing that's done around some of these treatments uh, suggests that, you know, these things can can avoid the need for knee replacement definitively, and I don't think that that's entirely supported. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but, that, you know, they can certainly help to reduce pain. The question is, is it worth it? And that I think you'd have to discuss with your provider. Stem cells probably has even less data to support it. Um, there's not a lot to suggest that by injecting stem cells it will uh, increase or grow cartilage, and this is quite expensive. So at this point, I think I'd stop short for recommending stem cells. One common procedure of the last, which has somewhat fallen out of favor in the last 15 years based on studies that have been done, has to do with washing, washouts, particularly of the knee, where uh, it's arthroscopy, where uh, went in with the surgeons went in with a needle or small uh, incisions and tried to wash out some of the debris in the knee. Uh, what has been your experience with that? Yeah, this is really um – there's limited indications for doing arthroscopy in the face of arthritis. So if you have significant cartilage loss where the x-rays show that the space between either your hip or knee is deteriorated, then we rarely recommend arthroscopy. And there's been a few studies done on this. It's somewhat difficult to perform a good study. One of the more famous and oft-quoted studies was one done decades ago in the VA health system where they actually did a randomized study in patients where one group had the washout, as you've suggested, the other group got the incisions for the surgery, but they didn't do anything. They just closed the patients up only in the VA. Do you think you could do this? But the results showed that there were really no differences in treatment between the two groups. That study hasn't been repeated to my knowledge, but I think we all agree that doing an arthroscopy uh, provides little benefit unless there's a, uh, a cartilage tear or a loose body or some mechanical thing that can be removed, which might help. But for the most part, we really don't recommend arthroscopy. And, and we now have learned that if you do arthroscopy immediately uh, preceding a joint replacement, it can lead to problems and complications uh, with your eventual knee replacement or hip replacement. You mentioned the VA. Let me, let me ask you about that. Uh, we have a lot of veterans here in Vermont. Um, how difficult is it, to your knowledge, to get a elective joint replacement through the VA system as opposed to the, uh, the private medicine? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, I'll probably have to have to claim ignorance on that one. You know, I did work at the VA hospital system in Philadelphia. In fact, uh, we spent quite a bit of time, and you know, so honored to be able to treat our veterans, and it, it's a service that. Uh, you know, we all have to be honored to, you know, for, uh, but I, you know, I, I honestly, I, I can't say for certain. I know uh, VA hospitals, they do provide joint replacements for their patients. I think they do a good service. Uh, but I know that there is, uh, at least there was when I was uh, working at the VA, quite a backlog of patients. And they probably don't work quite as efficiently as the private sector. Um, but, you know, I think they do do a nice service for their, for their veterans. You also mentioned uh, that a lot of uh, – this is the baby boomers for the most part that are coming in now for joint replacements. These are going to be people in their 60s, 70s, even 80s. Um, many of them may have comorbid conditions, what we call comorbid conditions prior to surgery, which whether it be high blood pressure, diabetes, heart problems, lung problems, et cetera, um, which makes some of your surgeries you know, almost by definition somewhat more – 
more risky. Um, tell me about that and, and how do you interact with the primary care as you get ready for surgery? Well, you, I'm sure, remember our relationship when you were working in Northern Virginia. It was, it's really important and critical. And this area of research is probably one of the more robust areas over the last decade or more in our field. You know, we've, we've kind of figured out what implants work, and, and, and now we're really learning about how do we make surgery safer and more successful by reducing complications. And we know that medical comorbidities play a big role, so we've learned a lot about things like obesity, diabetes, uh, smoking, uh, malnutrition. These are all risk factors that contribute to increased complications. Uh, Diabetes is a big one and a great example. Now, you know, uh, over the last 10 or 15 years, we've really put a lot of emphasis in making sure that we have good glycemic control. Basically, that's blood sugars have to be well controlled in the weeks and months Leading up to surgery, how would high blood sugar affect your this, your surgery or the success of your surgery? Right. Well, it doesn't affect anything that I do, so it doesn't change how I do the hip or knee replacement. But it absolutely does affect the outcomes. And the primary one that I think we all fear the most is infection. And we know that poorly controlled diabetes will increase the infection rate. And infection is a catastrophic complication we all want to avoid. And so the, the data is very clear that poorly controlled diabetes will increase the infection rate following hip and knee replacement. So it's our goal to make sure that that's tightly controlled. So we're, we're checking things, not only blood sugars, but uh, blood tests like the hemoglobin A1C. And there's another called fructosamine. These are tests that help to give us a sense of how well has the blood sugar been controlled in the preceding weeks and months. And if those are under poor control as we screen patients for surgery, then we'll postpone surgery until it can be uh, better controlled. How does uh, how do you think smoking a uh, hist- long history of smoking affects bones and, and bone uh, structure? Yeah, this one is. Um, I mean, we know uh, clearly smoking is a is a significant risk factor uh, for health problems, and it's been shown as well as a, a perioperative concern around. Uh, joint replacement surgery. There's, you know, there's some mixed data on this as far as how it affects uh, the outcomes of hip and knee replacement. Some suggesting uh, that it does increase the infection rate as well as the complication rates such as cardiopulmonary complications with your heart and lung following surgery. So uh, there's uh, certainly we do um, smoking counseling. So if we find patients that come in and they are uh, smokers, then we'll counsel them. We'll certainly encourage uh, them to reduce, if not quit smoking, in the four to six weeks prior to surgery. There are some surgeons now who have gone to testing for nicotine. There, You can do a urine test prior to surgery to screen for this, and some surgeons uh, will actually postpone or cancel their surgeries until their patients quit. We haven't quite gone uh, to that extent in, in Northern Virginia, at least in our own practice, but we certainly do a lot of smoking counseling, more so than we did years ago. One question patients ask is, and and uh, we know that these uh, surgeries, knee and particularly hip replacements, there is some blood loss, and I know there have been a lot of improvements intraoperatively in terms of saving and recycling a patient's own blood, but should patients be thinking about donating their own blood prior to surgery? Yeah, you know, Lewis, this is uh, one of a few things that has changed most dramatically 
in my 20 years of practice. So when I started 2002, we would take two units of blood for every hip replacement patient and one unit of blood for every knee replacement patient, and we'd give it back to them after surgery. We call that autologous transfusion, where we're taking the patient's own blood. In 2022, we do that for 0% of patients, and there's really no patients that we'd use autologous blood for. Uh, there's a number of reasons why this, there's been this change. Um, not only have our surgical techniques improved, uh, but we've improved the methods by which we administer anesthesia so we can reduce blood loss. We've, uh, there's ways around the surgery we can lose less. But maybe the most substantial change has been a medicine that we now give around the time of surgery that's called tranexamic acid. And tranexamic acid is an IV, well, it can be an IV or an oral medicine or even topical. Uh, we tend to use an IV, but it's given before and after surgery. And it's been around forever. This is not a new medicine. Uh, but it can help to reduce blood loss around the time of surgery. And I think the use of this, which really started probably in the late 2000s, it has absolutely changed our practice. So we no longer uh, use autologous blood. And the transfusion rates following hip and knee replacement are now in the single digits. Uh, and in our practice, honestly, in knee replacements, it's under 1%. Hip replacements, under 3%. That's of patients who uh, require blood. So I think that we've at least in our area, completely moved away from patients giving their own blood before surgery, and the expectations afterwards are that the transfusion rates should be very low. That is a very, very significant change, and I do remember the days uh, prior that you talked about. Yeah. We have a few minutes before our break. Let's start to talk about the surgeries themselves. First of all, a patient comes in. We've talked about some of the things they can do prior to uh, to help themselves get healthier, prior to going to surgery, but now you've decided uh, and they've decided that it, that it, you're going to go forward with a, uh, either a knee or a hip replacement. How do you decide in terms of partial versus total replacement? And do you decide before the surgery or do you often have to make that decision once you're, once you're uh, in the middle of a surgery? Well, let's start. Uh, there's a, it's a little different for both. So we'll start on the hip side. Um, with the hip replacement, Almost all patients get a total hip replacement. This is for a, a scheduled elective procedure that results from arthritis or other conditions. There are occasions where you do a half hip replacement for patients with hip fractures, but when you're doing an elective hip replacement, we almost always do total hip replacements because we're replacing the ball and socket. On the knee side, it is a little different. The knee is composed of three compartments. There's the medial or inside, lateral or outside, and the kneecap, what we call the patellofemoral joint. So there's three separate compartments of the knee. The most common surgery that's done when you have arthritis is a total knee replacement, and that's where the knee, where all three compartments of the knee are replaced. However, as you alluded to, you can do a partial knee replacement where either just the medial or just the lateral or just the patellofemoral joint are replaced. Most of the time, we can figure that out ahead of time by the combination of history, physical exam, and radiographs, x-rays. We can determine what's most appropriate. Is it appropriate to do a total knee or is it pre preferable to do a partial knee? And so we'll, we'll go into surgery uh, with a pretty good idea that we can uh, do a partial knee replacement. And, of course, that's a discussion with the patient. You go through the informed consent process. You have the discussion, hey, here's the pros and cons of partial versus total knee replacement, 
and then the patient and I will uh, agree to go forward. And then when you get into surgery, uh, while you might intend to do a partial knee replacement, there are situations when you have to uh, uh, go to total knee replacement because you find things that you don't necessarily expect. So we're always prepared to do the bigger procedure. We have that discussion with patients. We have that consented ahead of time. But most of the time when we uh, think we're going to do a partial knee replacement, we're able to go ahead and do that. Well, we have two minutes before break. Tell me what briefly, what are the pros and cons of a partial knee replacement? Well, a partial knee is, it, it's a, it's, you know, it only replaces the damaged part. So it leaves behind much of the normal knee. So some of the most important structures in your knee are what are called the cruciate ligaments. You've probably heard of the ACL and the PCL. These are things that are commonly damaged, say, with our professional athletes. But those are really important ligaments to give the knee stability and make it function normally. And those are usually sacrificed with the total knee replacement, but left behind with partial knee replacement. Same thing with the cartilage and the other parts of the knee that are not replaced. So a partial knee replacement is not only a smaller procedure, so it's a smaller incision, so there's good cosmesis with it, it looks better, um, but it's also safer. So it's lower chance of infection, lower chance of heart attack and pulmonary embolus, lower chance of blood clots, and there's significant data to support all this. And it's also an easier recovery. And I can find that comparing partial and total knees, patients tend to have a more, quote, normal feeling knee when they have a partial knee replacement. So for the right patient, I'm a real enthusiast for partial knees. I think it's a great procedure. Uh, however, if you look over the long run and you compare groups of partial knee patients to groups of total knee patients, and you look at, especially at larger registries, like in some countries like the United Kingdom, uh, Finland, Australia, it's pretty obvious that the revision rates is a little higher with partial knees than it is with total knees. And by revision rate, I mean the rate at which you need to go in and redo the procedure. And the most, in, in most commonly with partial knee, you have to take out the partial knee and put in a total knee. Yeah. So over the life of the implant, a little bit higher with partial knees than it is total knees. All right, I'm uh, going to have to interrupt that. That is helpful to know. We're going to be back 802-244-1777. Back in a minute. Dr. Lewis Myers, back with the second half of healthcare today. We have Dr. William Hamilton, orthopedist in Northern Virginia, and we're talking about joint replacements, particularly hip and knee. And we've talked about sort of preoperatively screening who needs a joint replacement and then how do they prepare for surgery and a little bit about the surgeries themselves and in terms of uh, uh, very interesting about saving, uh, reducing the amount of blood transfusions. We talked about uh, partial versus total replacement, particularly in the knee. So, Dr. Hamilton, let's talk a little bit about postoperative care, which I know has changed dramatically. You you mentioned that in the beginning of the hour um, in terms of hospital stay has markedly decreased. This is also where your team comes into play, not only your operative team, operating team in the OR, but you have a whole bunch of people you work with that help people through this process and um, why don't we talk about what happens, for example, in a knee replacement when someone comes back to their room from their surgery? What, what is the average day like? Well, the surgery itself typically takes me about an hour to do. Um, we usually now are doing this under regional anesthesia, so that we, we favor using a spinal anesthesia. That's you know putting a medicine via needle in the spine that numbs you up from the waist down. We give people sedation. 
so they sleep through the procedure. But what this allows for is, is, is waking up far quicker and without the effects of general anesthesia. So patients return to the recovery suite. Uh, the spinal anesthetic wears off. We usually typically use short-acting spinals. So the patients are moving their legs uh, within an hour of, of returning to the recovery area. We'll, um, we have a number of other pain control modalities that have really revolutionized how, we, uh, how patients feel. So we're giving medicines before surgery. We're giving medicines during surgery, both through the IV, uh, through the uh, spinal, as well as injecting medicine in and around the knee joint. And that really helps with pain control in the, in the, hour, in the, you know, in the hours that follow the procedure. Patients are usually awake pretty quickly. Uh, they're accompanied by their family members, and we get them walking, I would uh, estimate, within an hour of the procedure. Walking on a new uh, knee, on a new knee. On a new knee or hip, yeah. Walking yeah. Uh, literally within one to two hours, up and standing and walking. And um, I would estimate now that over fifty percent of of my practice, and, and it might be as high as sixty or seventy percent of patients will actually go home on the day of surgery. Uh, which is a remarkable change from just a decade ago when almost everyone stayed in the hospital. But this transition to doing outpatient hip and knee replacements has been remarkable. And so on a given week, I might do 10 or 15 joint replacements. Probably two-thirds of them do go home on the day of the procedure. So they're walking, they're going up and down stairs, they're getting in and out of the bathroom, eating and drinking, and, uh, and going home. In fact, just today, and I usually touch base with my patients the day after the procedure. I spoke with four of my patients that I did yesterday. They're all at home. They're comfortable. They're smiling. They're thankful that they're through it, uh, but but doing quite well. It's been a remarkable change over the past several years. Well, let me ask you this question that brings up, the, you know, sort of the parallel uh, parallel issue of uh, women who have, give childbirth and, and uh, are sometimes sent home the same day, and that's been somewhat controversial. Was this movement toward almost outpatient uh, uh, replacements gen- uh, initiated, you think, by financial and insurance, uh, or was it, you know, the medical, the physicians themselves thinking it's a great idea? It's a, it's a good question, and I think it's probably multifactorial. Uh, you know, I can, I can promise you that, um, that certainly all of this, you know, as a physician, you and I have our patients uh, safety as priority number one. So we've we've evolved into this slowly. So we follow our data very closely. So over the course of 20 years, uh, we've watched our length of stay come down gradually. It didn't change overnight, but we went from probably a two and a half uh, day length of stay uh, average in 2000, 2002. And that came down slowly. Each year, patients would go home a little bit faster. So in you know 2010, the average length of stay was probably in our at our facility 1.2 days, one and a half days. And what we realized was that most of our patients were going home the day after surgery, and we could slowly start to send select patients home on the day of surgery. And we were very selective at first because we were nervous. We of course didn't want complications happening with our patients. So when we first started sending patients home on the day of surgery, it was you know, you're a very young, healthy patient with great home support. So your 40, 50-year-old patient is having a hip or knee replacement. 
Uh, they were the exception rather than the rule. And slowly over time, what we realized was that this can be done, it can, and it can be done safely. And there's been a number of publications uh, in our in our specialty showing that same-day discharge can be done safely. And in fact, in, in some or many of these publications, it's almost safer to send patients home than it is to keep people in the hospital. Now, clearly, there's some... Uh, patients who are medically not safe to be at home who need to be in the hospital. But what we've learned is that patients can be home, and in many ways they are happier and safer being in the, the comfort of their own home than they are in the hospital. You and I both know, Lewis, being in the hospital is not the most pleasant thing in the world. While our hospital system is great, hospitals are for sick patients. They're not for patients uh, that can safely be treated at home. So while there have been some financial incentives uh, for insurers, certainly I wouldn't deny that, and even for physicians as some of the business moves to ambulatory care centers and surgery centers, uh, I think uh, the primary take-home message is that this is better for patients, both with safety and patient satisfaction. This is probably where I should also – we should talk about, and I mentioned your team, because the physical and occupational therapists are tremendously important uh, post-operatively and both in the hospital and then once someone gets home. Can you talk a little bit about their role? Yeah, there's, uh, there's a, there is a whole team approach to this. There's no question. I, I can't do this alone. So it's, it's our staff in the office, including our administrative staff, our nurses, and then uh, physical therapy plays a huge role. Um, PT is probably more uh, influential on the knee side. Hip replacement patients tend to recover pretty well, um, even on doing a self-guided PT program. Uh, but knee replacement patients uh, clearly benefit uh, from physical therapy. So our, our knee replacement patients now will go, most people go directly to their local physical therapist, um, and that helps to get the knee moving, get stronger, regain range of motion. And if there's problems, uh, we communicate with the physical therapist, but they are critical uh, to getting a good outcome, so and some of our best referral sources. So it's we have a, a strong collaborative relationship uh, between us and the physical therapy team. And I also happen to remember that you had wonderful case managers who sort of coordinated care uh, postoperatively for the for the patient, beginning in the hospital and then extending through the uh, you know short term postoperative care before they went back to their primary care. Yeah, I, yeah. Can you? I'm sorry, my speaker went out there. Oh, I was talk, mentioning your case managers, who were also yes. very, very important in terms of coordinating care, both inpatient and then in the short-term outpatient afterwards. Yeah, no question. We and they're part of the team as well. And you know, some of this has gotten simpler. So, you know, our case managers, who were extremely influential in in helping in the previous years with regards to setting up. Uh, inpatient rehab discharge, which was really common uh, uh, 10 or 15 years ago, as well as a lot of home care, we've kind of moved away from. So, yes, the case managers still play a big role, but some of it has actually become simpler um, because patients are going into the home environment. They're going directly to their own physical therapist. We've actually moved away from some of those home care services, still play a role in certain patients and are important, but some of this has actually gotten a fair bit simpler because of the advancements we've been able to make. Let's talk briefly about pain medication and anticoagulation, starting with pain medication. Obviously, 
we are very aware now that <clears throat> opioid pain uh, medications have created some problems. They've helped many people out through painful situations, but they've created some problems long term. Um, how does your clinic and your practice uh, evolved around that? Yeah, no, this has been a really a 180 in in how we think of this. Um, and you're right, the opioid epidemic is a huge issue. It's um, a real; it remains a real problem nationwide. And, and physicians and orthopedists uh, probably have played a role in that, and, and we're doing our part to really try and turn that around. So um, we routinely um, prescribe substantial numbers of narcotics and and use these as as the primary means of pain control following surgery. Um, and now we're we're moved over to what we call a multimodal pain control program, which means we're not just using narcotics like Percocet or Vicodin to control pain, but we're using a number of different types of medications to try and control pain. So we'll combine uh, things like Tylenol, an NSAID, which is an, an anti-inflammatory medicine. We use a lot of ice or cold therapy. Uh, and then we'll use milder pain medicines in the narcotic family. One is called tramadol. Uh, but we'll reserve our Percocet Vicodin-type medicines, which is oxycodone, um, as a really a rescue medicine. And we have reduced the number of pills that we give out dramatically. So we'll give patients certainly enough pills to get them through the acute uh, pain after surgery, uh, but we've found that the number of pills that patients used has gone down dramatically. And I recently actually published a couple papers on this, found that about 20% of my hip replacement patients required no oxycodone after surgery. And the remaining 80% used somewhere like 10 to 15 pills on average per patient. Uh, so, you know, 15 years ago, we would prescribe 90 pills per patient because we wanted to make sure that no patients ran out of medications and we, we're trying to serve our patients. Now we really reduce that. So we're not only using less medicines, but putting fewer pills out onto the uh, street. Very significant change. Let's yeah. talk about uh, anticoagulation. You mentioned infection earlier and we, we may come back to that in, if time permits, but, and that's sometimes a later complication, but more immediately, uh, I know that surgeons and internists fear uh, blood clots forming from you know, the surgery itself. Uh, and where are we in terms of preventing blood clots? Yeah, that's a great question. It's another paradigm shift that's happened over the course of the last 10 or 15 years. Um, you know, back uh, 20 years ago, all patients, hip and knee replacements, really got a fairly aggressive chemoprophylaxis, meaning we were using medications to prevent blood clots. Uh, historically, it was Coumadin, which is warfarin you know, a blood thinner that requires monitoring. All of our patients would take that years ago. Uh, they came up with different uh, blood thinners like Lovenox, which is an injectable that, that you put under the skin a time or two a day. And now newer blood thinners that can be used by pills uh, that, that thin the blood. I tell you, in our field, it's been a remarkable shift. We've really moved away from these really strong blood thinners and moved towards using things like aspirin. Aspirin as a means of blood clot prevention has grown in popularity and, and now has really become kind of the standard of care for hip and knee replacement patients. So for patients who are standard risk for a blood clot, meaning you haven't had a blood clot before, you don't have a condition that predisposes you 
to getting a blood clot. We now give people uh, aspirin twice a day. We, of course, encourage people to walk quickly and and often use compressive devices on their legs to help prevent blood clots. But it's only in our high-risk patients, people who have had a blood clot before or pulmonary embolus, are we using some of the stronger blood thinners. And and that's really been a, a, a shift and a change, for I think, for the better because it's reduced not only the burden on patients, they don't have to have their blood monitored, they don't have to give themselves injections, it's reduced the costs, but it's really reduced the complications with regards to bleeding-related complications. We know some of these really strong blood thinners can cause bleeding-related complications uh, at the surgical site, which can cause problems. So it's really reduced that, in my, in, in my opinion, and the data really supports that. So that's been a significant shift. The risk of blood clots is still there after surgery, but it's really quite low as long as uh, you get patients moving quickly after the procedure. Let's talk about just a little bit about the the materials that you use. I think there's been probably significant, as there is in a lot of different areas of medicine, significant improvement in the the, the materials that you you use to do your joint replacements. No, there's no question. Uh, on the hip side and 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 on the knee side, the, probably the biggest improvements have been have come in with regards to the quality of the plastic. So most hip and knee replacements, basically, you're putting in a metal part to resurface the joint and then, uh, and then a plastic insert to act as the new cushion. And the plastic, it's made of a ultra high molecular weight polyethylene. That's a hard plastic basically, but wear of the plastic was always the problem in hip and knee replacements through the eighties and nineties. Uh, they could replace them successfully, but the plastic would wear and the wear would shed small particles into the joint, which would cause problems with uh, implants failing by coming loose or with losing bone around the time around the uh, joint. So that was a real problem. And, and the plastic uh, was, was really the, the, uh, the source of the problem over the course of time through technology and innovative products, the plastic and the rates of wear of the plastic have come down dramatically. And now the plastics wear at very, very low rates. So we're using very similar materials, still metals, uh, alloys that replace the joint. Sometimes we use ceramics, like in the hip, we're commonly using a ceramic ball. Uh, but the plastic is the source of the greatest improvement. And now, uh, whereas hip replacements and even knee replacements might last you 10 or 15 years before the plastic would wear out, I think we can expect uh, substantial improvements in those numbers and and the wear rates are so low that it's certainly conceivable that these could last 30, 40 plus years uh, compared to uh, decades ago. Another question that, that uh, has been asked is, uh, what is the advantage? Obviously, there are some potential disadvantages. What might be the advantage of doing bilateral knees or bilateral hips simultaneously, in other words, during the same procedure? Yeah, so that's something that is done. You, you know, if a patient presents with two bad hips or two bad knees at the same time, um, they can be done at the same time. Uh, my criteria for doing someone uh, with bilateral hips or knees, obviously they need to have uh, bilateral disease, so the x-rays need to show the conditions there. We don't just do a another knee replacement just because we're there. Um, they need to have symptoms from it as well, so not just x-rays that show it, but they need to have pain, and then uh, and then they need to be in reasonable health. So we know that 
doing two uh, at the same time doubles the amount of surgery. It does increase the blood loss. It increases the overall surgical stress to the system. So for patients that are medically uh, frail or have significant medical conditions that that we're worried about, such as cardiac conditions, obesity, that sort of thing, they may be uh, better served by doing one of the joints at a time. But for patients that are medically healthy, um, there can be a significant upside to doing them both at once. The most obvious is just that you get it over with. So one time in the hospital, one time under anesthesia, uh, one recovery, and one time out of work. So most of America works, and you know, and taking time off of work can be a real burden. So if you can eliminate the number of times you have to go to the hospital, the doctor, or the num- amount of days you take out of work or out of life in general, well, that's a really uh, substantial upside to the patient. And, and a lot of people that do them both at once really, really are happy with that. With that said, I'll have a discussion with each patient and we'll, we'll be fairly selective about who we do, uh, two hips or two knees on making sure that we don't compromise safety. I know that you concentrate on knees and hips and really don't do shoulder replacements, but um, and shoulder replacements have, I believe they're increasing in terms of the numbers that are being done. It's still a very difficult surgery with less, sometimes less consistently favorable outcomes. Um, is there anything you want to add about shoulder replacements? I think shoulders, uh, shoulder replacement is a good procedure, and, and you're right, they're increasing. I don't do it. Personally, but I have a couple partners that are, do high volumes of, jo- of shoulder replacements. And in fact, my mother had a shoulder replacement. So I have firsthand knowledge of, of seeing someone go through the uh, recovery. And these can really be life changing procedures, just like the hip and knee. They're not horribly complicated to do. Obviously, you've got to get it right. So you want a surgeon with a good experience, but these really can improve pain and function. Um, and, uh, you know, the recovery in some ways is a little bit easier than, say, a knee replacement. You don't walk on your shoulders, so it can be a little bit less disabling. Um, but, no, these can be very successful procedures, and, and, and as you said, they're increasing uh, uh, in frequency. A little bit controversial question here, but you've mentioned, you know, the experience of the surgeon and the team obviously counts. Um we're here in here in Vermont. We have a number of small hospitals, and then we have a couple of large tertiary care hospitals. We have Rutland Regional, which does a, a, a great deal of uh, uh, joint replacements. Um, if a patient is considering getting a knee or hip or shoulder replacement, <clears throat> uh, what are the pros and cons of, of going to a, quote, unquote, center of excellence? Well, um you know, this is a tricky question. You know, a lot of uh, America is far away from some of the experts. So, you know, not all of us live next to uh, the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York or, or Harvard Medical Center. So, you know, a lot of people are, most joint replacements are done by smaller facilities. And that, that stat's been out there, and, and people do very well with that. With that said, there's quite a bit of data sh- showing uh, that in, outcomes can be improved uh, by centers that do higher volumes and by physicians that do higher volumes. And that's just common sense. I think the more that you do something, probably the better you get. You can, you can become a bit more efficient at it. You can standardize processes. You can make sure that 
you, know, you do the same thing every time. This is, I hate to use the analogy of an assembly line, but there's a reason that Henry Ford was so successful because he made sure that things were done in a reproducible manner. And the same can be done with medicine where you do, if you do things repeatedly and you implement protocols to make sure that say every patient gets antibiotics, every patient gets anticoagulation, every patient gets the appropriate physical therapy, then you can improve your overall outcomes. And I think that's, Part of what these uh, uh, centers will offer, um, which is that they have not only surgeons that do the same thing again and again, and I think just get better at it and can reduce complications, but they can implement protocols. And then as a matter of scale, you know, they can have staff that specialize. So I can tell you, while I think I'm an amazing surgeon, if I don't have my team in surgery, that includes the scrub tech and the assistant, my PA and the anesthesiologist who all do this every day, time and time again, um, you know, I'm, I'm much, uh, it's much harder for me to do a good job. So the team approach can really lend itself to improved overall outcomes. Well, I, I know, <clears throat> excuse me, know that the Anderson uh, Orthopedic Clinic is, is a center of excellence and we certainly um, really appreciate you being here. I, uh, so what we've heard is that the numbers of uh, joint replacements are increasing as we age, but that the we're actually having less, far less complications than we did in the past. People are staying in the hospital much less, far fewer blood transfusions, uh, hopefully far fewer infections, uh, and people are getting up to their feet and, re- and returning to the active lives that they hope for much sooner. So I want to thank you for being here um, and uh, – Hope you come up to Vermont and uh, um, able to enjoy some skiing if that's what you do. We uh, uh, and hope everyone will stay safe uh, during the wind during this snowy time uh, wherever you are. Um, Dr. Hamilton, thank you, Lewis. I really appreciate you having me, and uh, good luck in Vermont. I'd love to visit. Uh, we have a very warm day here in Alexandria, so enjoy the snow. Thank you. And I hope you'll join us next week on Healthcare Today. Uh, until then, uh, please be kind to yourselves, be kind to others, and uh, please be careful out there in the snow. Thank you so much. Today with Dr. Lewis Myers, brought to you in part by Age Well Vermont, the leading experts and advocates for older adults in northwestern Vermont. Westview Meadows and the Gary Residence, retirement living the way it's meant to be. Kinney Drugs and KinneyDrugs.com, employee owned and locally committed. Northfield Pharmacy, pharmacy care with a personalized hometown touch. NorthfieldPharmacy.com. The music for this program was written and produced by Armin Bayajan.